We continue to talk about this idea of straying from God, the fact that uh, believers can can get confused and can begin to desert the gospel that was preached to them and the gospel that they received. So let me be very clear here. Let me say this again. It is possible for uh, genuine believers to get confused. And the idea that all believers, as soon as they get saved, just have this full understanding, full maturity, uh, have very few problems in their life in regard to understanding uh, doctrine, understanding their relationship with Jesus, understanding the gospel, is just not true. In fact, Satan has uh, different strike points. His, his aim and his desire is to cut things off. His desire is to get Christians confused. And he has a whole strategy about how he's going to do this, how he is going to confuse believers, uh, how he's going to get them off track, how he's going to manipulate them, and how he's going to bring great confusion into their lives. And one of the things that he does is he tries to cut people off uh, when they are uh, baby Christians. He likes to kill things or try to kill them. He's not able to kill the faith of a true Christian, but he can confuse them. And he tries to do this when uh, people have come to the Lord and they're still relatively new in the faith. So he has a very uh, specific strategy. And I believe if we looked at the different strategies of Satan, we could see different strike points where he's been watching people now for thousands of years. He has a strategy for people's lives, and one of his main strategies is to really come in as soon as a person comes to Christ. You would think that a baby Christian, somebody who's only been saved, let's say, a year or two years, like these Galatians were, perhaps two, perhaps three years, would have the attitude of, oh, teach me. I've come to Christ, I, I want to know what's true, and I want you who are wiser in the faith, those who have been walking with the Lord, I'm going to look at you, I'm going to imitate your life, I'm going to be searching the scriptures diligently. But often that doesn't take place, especially when a believer is young. We've had uh, four children in our house, and you would think if there was ever a prime opportunity for children to really want teaching, it's when they're young. But I never had one of our children come to us and say at five, six, seven years old, Oh, Father, you are so wise. And, and I, my dear dad, am so young and inexperienced. And I was just hoping you could sit down with me and impart the wisdom that you've learned from your father and from our forefathers in the past. That's never happened. Never happened. Now, you'd think that that might be, you would think if somebody's young, that would be the right attitude. A person would say, I'm young, I, I don't know any better. I even think of my age and I go, what am I not listening to now that I would be listening to if I was 20 years out from now? And I, I think that there needs to be a spirit in, in our whole walk with the Lord of teach me. 
Teach me, Lord. But that's not really the case in the natural life. And so we have to, you would think a, a child would be scared to, scared to death to kind of launch out onto their own, and they're not. So you have to protect them. You don't just leave the door wide open and let them wander around the streets because that's exactly what they would do if they had the opportunity. If they could feed themselves, it would be candy and ice cream and cake uh, every day for three meals. And by the way, it's the same spiritually. You, you would think that the right attitude would be, I'm young in the faith, and oftentimes there's a real appetite for the word of God. In fact, that's an evidence of a, of a baby Christian is that they're hungry for the word of God, just like a baby in the natural world is, is hungry for his or her mother's milk. But oftentimes it's very easy to get off track. And so there are many examples in the scripture where people who are young in the faith are getting off track, and Satan knows that this is the case. So he has this, he has this strategy to, to say, well, here, here's somebody who's new in the faith. Here's somebody who's only been walking with the Lord for a couple of years. And so I'm going to throw everything in their path to confuse them about true teaching. I'm amazed, I'm shocked, and I've learned this even in this church with people who've come to Christ, who've gotten saved. And you would think that oftentimes somebody who comes to Christ would just say, okay, I'm in a position where I need to learn more about the Lord and continue to just grow in their faith. And oftentimes that's not the case. All of a sudden they hear another voice and they hear this teaching and then they hear that teaching and all of a sudden they're, they're church hopping, and they're from this church to that church. And you would think that at that point in their life, they would be saying, I need to be grounded. But oftentimes, that's simply not the case. And that's not the case here with, with Paul. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, if you flip over there, that Satan has certain strategies. If you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, says this, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Have you ever thought about Satan's tactics? The fact that he's not just out loosely tripping people up, but that he has... Real tactics, he has real schemes, he has real designs on people's life. In fact, he has designs and tactics to trip your life up. I remember when we had first come to this church, and we were very young in this church, and this church was extremely small. And I remember sitting around with our leaders, and I had written them a letter, and I said, you know, Satan's desire is to kill things when they're little. And that's always been his plan. His, his plan is to kill off things when people are babies in the natural world as well as in the physical world. If you remember back, we won't turn to it, but in, in Exodus, if you remember back uh, in, in chapter 122 where Pharaoh came in and he said that he was going to kill all the baby boys. And, uh, of course, his design was to try to kill off Moses and uh the, the plan of God here, of course, it didn't work, but that was his desire. Let me kill all the little ones. 
If you remember later on with Herod and the same thing with Jesus, he said, let me kill all the little boys who are two years old and under. In fact, if you flip with me to Matthew chapter 2, you can see this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So what was his desire? His desire was to uh, kill off this rival king who would become the Messiah. And so what is Satan's tactic? His tactic is to kill off babies. His, his desire is to kill off things when they're weak and when they're young, just like a, a lion sitting in the, the thicket is waiting for that, for that baby gazelle or uh, that doe, that fawn that's going to come along that's weak or... or or a deer that is sickly so that it can, it can pounce on it. This is his aim. This is his desire is to kill things off. And I, I think about the whole notion of abortion. The fact that he has managed to kill off almost 60 million babies in this nation. I'm going to talk about a true tragedy. Now, I'm, I'm concerned about children, and we've heard a lot on the news about children recently and uh, concerned about children all over this world. But I find it to be the height of hypocrisy. I mean the height of hypocrisy. When we are talking about children from other nations while we're slaughtering our own children. How bizarre is that? And these people who are, who are saying these things, listen, they don't care about the children. You know, this whole notion of we care about the children, this is all tactics straight from hell. That's what it is. And so we see this tactic over and over again in history. In fact, if we cared about the children on the nightly news, we'd be reporting about the bloody bodies of all the hundreds and thousands of children that were taken that day and that week. It could be nothing more satanic. And so Satan sees a new Christian and he says, I want to I abort this thing. I want to cut this person's faith off at the pass. I want to make sure that they don't understand really what the gospel is as they continue on in the Christian faith. What they thought they understood, I want to confuse it. I want to paralyze that person so that they're so scared that they can't even share their faith with other people, that other people aren't coming to Christ. They get off on this wrong path. This is, this is the desire of the wicked one, and perhaps there are even confused people in this church. And I would just stop and just ask you, are you confused? 
Have you gotten to a place in your life where you have gotten off of the path of God? You knew what the gospel was. You came to Christ. This is not a matter of you were never saved or anything like that, but you knew Christ. And all of a sudden, the enemy of your soul has come and he has used other people and he's used other voices to whisper things in your ear that are contrary to the truth of the gospel. And all of a sudden, a person begins to get thrown off the path. And uh, this is not by mistake. This is not just haphazard chance. This is a tactic of, of the enemy. And so what does Paul do? He's a, he's a shepherd. He's, he's a pastor. And so when he comes along, he's looking at this. And as we looked at last week, he's, he's absolutely shocked at what's going on. Because there's something within us when somebody begins to get off the path, we go, we know this can happen. We know this is a tactic of the enemy. Satan uh, is, is witty. He has lots of schemes. And the Christian looks back and goes, I can't believe this is happening to so-and-so. Maybe you're even saying that about yourself. I can't believe I've gotten off the path here. Or you're looking at somebody and you're saying, you understood the gospel. Listen, this is about Christians these are Galatians who understood and knew the gospel. And somewhere along the line, their, their heart began to be calloused. And there was a desire, as we saw last week, on their part. This isn't just the teachers came in, the big, bad, false teachers. There was a desire on their part to follow this false teaching. They said, you know what? Maybe this isn't deep enough. It's amazing how many Christians, baby Christians, will say things like that. Maybe this isn't deep enough, the simplicity of the gospel. Maybe there's more to it than this, and a false teacher comes along and begins to stir that person up. And all of a sudden, this person who really loves the Lord is confused. And so Paul comes along and he says, listen, I'm calling you back. You know Christ. You've known Christ for two or three years, or perhaps... You've known Christ for a long time, but something happened along the way. And uh, whenever a person gets confused like that, there needs to be the humility of mind that says, Lord Jesus, I come back to you. I come back. Uh, we talk about rededication, and sometimes that's a good thing. You know, the person who just said a prayer and never had true repentance, and just goes off and says, well, I've said a prayer, and God's a God of grace, and it's all about grace, but there was never really any true conversion. And that person just says, I'm going to just go live a life of sin, because God's a God of grace. That person has never understood the gospel. The cost of what it, what it costs the Son of God to come to this earth. So when a person really understands the gospel in their heart, they've been pierced to the heart over their sin. They say, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. It's not cheap grace. It's not just I say a prayer and then off to my life again. There's a change that takes place. And so a person comes and says, Lord, I, I need you. And there have been many people who've said that and they've understood the gospel that it's all Christ. All Christ. And yet, at some point, something happened where they got off track. And the call of God to that person is come back. 
Thank God that he's the shepherd God who goes after the lost sheep. He doesn't just say, well, you had your chance. I'm done with you. But he keeps calling. He doesn't just give us a second chance. He gives us a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a thousandth chance. I was recently talking to somebody about forgiveness. Remember Peter? He said, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven? I thought this was a big idea. Seven times for the same thing? Imagine somebody doing something to you once and then twice and then three times and four times. Same thing. You'd think by the seventh time you'd say, whoa, wait a second here. Maybe after two or three times. And so Peter thinks, wow, this is, this is a big deal. I'm, I'm coming and I'm saying seven times for the same thing. This isn't just random sins. And Jesus says, no, he says it's 70 times seven. He's not saying 490 times. He's saying you forgive them infinitely because that's how your father forgave you. And so you keep coming back. Why? Because the Lord keeps calling us back time and time and time again. And uh, that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 it says this, love believes all things. We're not naive, but there's this desire that says, Lord, we're coming back. And the Lord says, I forgive you again. And so what Paul is doing here is he's calling people back from confusion, back from the mist. And yet there is an astonishment and it's a holy shock that says, what are you doing? It's not condescending. It's not judgmental in the wrong sense of the word. But there's a compassion. There's a, a wondering. There's an awe. What's going on here? You were doing so well. You understood the gospel, and yet somehow, somewhere along the way, you lost your way. You lost your way. So let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, he, verse 6, as we... Looked at last week, I'm astonished that you are so quickly. You are quickly. This is, this is within them. This is their desire. It's not just coming from the outside. Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And we said if you turn to a different gospel, if you don't embrace the true gospel, you are turning your back on God. To turn your back on the true gospel is to turn your back on God. That's exactly what it says here. You're quickly deserting him. How are you deserting him? You're deserting him by quickly turning to a different gospel. Then he says this. I want you to be clear. I want to reemphasize the exclusivity of the gospel. It's exclusive. It's narrow. When somebody says the path is so narrow, there's only one way, it's exclusive, it's singular, it's unique, we say, yes, that's right. There's only one path. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so there's only one path. There's only one gospel. There are not many different paths. And we, we hear this all the time. As long as you're sincere, as long as you truly believe in God, then everything's going to be okay. It'll all work out for you in the end. There are multiple paths. There are multiple ways to God. 
And the Bible stands out and says, no, no, no. The gospel is exclusive. The gospel is singular. There's only one path to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, his only son. That's the only way to God. And so we have, um, we have all sorts of people who say things like this. Well, wait, that's awful narrow. That's awful exclusive. What about people that have never heard the gospel before? And the question needs to be asked, do they die? Yes, they die. Why do they die? Because the wages of sin is death. The reason we go to hell is not because we've never heard the gospel. It's because of our sin. It's because of our sin. That's why, that's why we, we send missionaries all over the world to preach the gospel to people. Listen, if people never heard the gospel simply go to heaven, we would say, don't send any missionaries. Let them just die in their ignorance, and at least they'll go to heaven. But we don't say that. Why, why don't we say that? Because we understand people who are lost without Christ are truly, as Paul said, lost without God and without hope in this world. And so we send missionaries to all the corners of the earth and uh, to people in Wilkes-Barre. We say, have you heard the good news of Jesus Christ? That without him, unless you come to a place in your life where you repent and you believe, you will not be saved. And this is such an unpopular message. And there are so many people who are just saying, well... I don't know if I really believe that. There are people who teach in churches, preach in evangelical churches who say, well, yes, we need to go by Jesus, but there's this wider mercy, and who knows, maybe he'll let some people in because he's a compassionate God. Oh, he's a compassionate God. But we must understand the gospel, and we must understand the specific nature of who Christ is and what he has come to do for us or we will not be saved. And this is, um, this is the great delight when we're sending people all over the world. We're say saying, you carry, you carry in your hands the word of life. You, you carry within your heart, you carry within your hands the truth of the gospel. And as that gospel is preached, the, the, the power of salvation comes upon people, swift conviction, true conviction, the assurance of the Holy Spirit. People's eyes are opened. I, I would just even ask you, have you turned to Christ? Do you know Christ? Not have you turned to facts about Christ. You've gotten to a place in your life where you look right at Christ and you say, Jesus, I, I recognize that the gospel is really about you. The gospel is Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection in our, in our place. So he says, I want you to, to understand there, there is no other gospel. There are many false messages, and there are some who trouble you. They agitate you. These false teachers have come in, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ, it's a monstrosity. It's this ugly thing. They have, they have taken this beautiful gospel and they've mangled it. They've turned it around in, into something that is no gospel at all. In fact, in the Greek here, it means to be turned around. So here's a person, they understand the nature of the gospel and they're walking in the certain path toward Christ 
who is the embodiment of the gospel, and all of a sudden they begin to hear voices over their shoulder, false teachers, and their inward desires, even though they're saved, they still are battling sin within themselves, and all of a sudden they're starting to turn, and they're starting to face these false teachers. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You've been turned somehow. Somebody got a hold of you. You came in and you were doing so well, but there's been, there's been a turning in your life. In fact, if you go over to Acts chapter 2, the same word is used. Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Says this, the sun shall be here, it is turned to darkness. So you have something that was bright and lit and full of light. It's now being turned to darkness. This is what Paul is saying about the gospel. And the and the moon is turned to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. He says, These these false teachers have come in to agitate you, to bring confusion in to the church, to turn people away from Christ, to turn on each other, to bite and devour each other. This whole idea of troubling. If you go over to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, we see this same idea of false teachers coming in and troubling the believers. Acts chapter 15, verse 24 Acts chapter 15, verse 24, says this, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you, there's that same idea, that same word, have troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, and this is what is going on in the churches of Galatia. The people's minds are unsettled, they're agitated, they are they're troubled, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. He's saying, we didn't tell them to teach you these things. And yet they came to you with a, with a false teaching. So what are these false teachers doing? They're turning people away from the notion and the true doctrine that salvation is in Christ alone. That it's only in Christ alone that it has nothing to do with anything that we do. Nothing that we say, no place that we go, nothing that we do to our body. We are not saved by anything that we do. And so when we come to Christ, we come to an end of ourselves and we say, we're going to stop trying to do good things in order to get into heaven, in order to somehow please God, get God on our side, we're going to come to Christ. We come to an end of ourselves. Listen, this is total grace. There's nothing we can do to earn heaven. There's nothing we can do to get God to say to us, you know what, I favor you because of something that you have done. And so there is a point in our life where we say, it's you alone, Lord. Lord, I'm a sinner. And uh, I come to you, and I'm trusting in you alone to save me. And listen, there are false teachings, false gospels everywhere. One of the biggest false teachings we see is in the Catholic Church. This whole notion of, yes, it's Jesus. These are the modern-day Judaizers. 
Yes, it's Jesus, and yes, you need to trust in Jesus for your salvation, but it's not Jesus alone. It's not just trusting in Christ alone by repenting and believing in him alone, but it's also by doing certain things. So it's Jesus plus. And there are many people who are thinking this. Well, I'll go to Mass, I'll go to church, I'll do these different things as long as I trust in Jesus and I'm a decent person that God will allow me into heaven, that God will be on my side. And we have this in Protestant churches, make no mistake. It's amazing how many people talk about their life. Well, he lived a good life. Well, there's nothing wrong with saying that he lived a good life or she lived a good life. But if that's what the trust is in, as if it was Jesus plus their good life, well, he was such a good person. He's such a decent person. Surely God must really like him because he's such a, a nice young fellow or a decent older fellow. You got real issues because that's not the gospel. We have false cults all over. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. We have uh, people in all sorts of uh, different occultic activities and cultish activities that are somehow believing it's within them. It's a light within, something good within. And this is this is the teaching of the world. In fact, I, I would argue that um, instead of people just saying, you know what, I'm really trying to please God with my good works in man-made religion, that they're actually preparing themselves to argue their case before God. You know, people who are doing good works are not doing it for God's glory. Listen, they're not coming before God and they're saying, listen, God, I lived a, a life of uh, good works and I did it for your glory and this is why you should let me into heaven. That's not what people are saying. There's no doubt in my mind that as people stand before God, listen, this, this is their desire. This is what they want to do. They want to argue their case. They want to say, God, um, I come before you, and I'm not just asking you to accept me, but I want you to examine my life. And what you're going to find, God, is you're going to find that I'm a pretty good person. And person after person, listen, the world is not trying to glorify God, even in false religions with their good works. That's not what they're trying to do. It's a satanic motivation to argue their case against God. Have you ever had somebody argue with you? And can you imagine that one person after another is going to stand before God without a contrite spirit, without a repentant spirit, they're not coming before God to say, God, I lived a life in your honor. I lived a life for your glory. No, no. They're going to be saying, God, here's why you should let me into heaven. I was decent. And God, if you were really fair, if you were really loving, if you were really just, you would let me into heaven because of what I've done. That's, that's the motivation here. And person after person is going to stand before God and they're going to try to argue their case before the Lord. The Lord is going to say something like, well, you sure look pretty good, maybe compared to some other men and some other women. But the standard for heaven is complete holiness. The standard for heaven is complete righteousness. The standard for heaven is my son. And person after person is going to have their mouth closed on that last day as they stand before the Lord. Lord, let me argue my case. Case dismissed. So proud. 
the pride of man. We are so proud. So person number one comes, and then person number two, I'd like to argue my case before you, Lord. Case dismissed, case dismissed, case dismissed. Billions of people standing before the Lord. And by the way, every person is going to have their day in court. Unbelievable. How this is all going to work out is only in the wisdom of God, but he is going to allow every person to stand before him. And as they stand before him and they begin to argue their case before God, he will say, no, 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 no. Here is why you have fallen short. And every person will, on that last day, utter that Christ is Lord. And listen, that's a, that's a sovereign day. That's a sobering day. The only thing that will save us on that final day is when we stand before the Lord. And we say, Lord, uh, the truth is, I'm not worthy to come in. I'm not worthy. My, de my best deeds, my greatest days were as filthy rags in your sight. Lord, I don't deserve anything but your justice. And yet, Lord, I come to you, and the only reason I know that I stand before you with a case is because I don't plead my own case, but I plead Christ for me. That Jesus Christ, he lived in my place, he died in my place, and he rose again for me. And when I was on earth, I trusted in him, and I believe that his righteousness was credited to my account, and that's why I stand before you. I don't stand before you because of myself but I simply and only stand before you because of what Christ has done for me. And until we have that understanding, we don't get the gospel. Listen, if you have in your back pocket, you're going to argue with God a little bit. I'm trusting Christ, but I also have some arguments ready just in case this doesn't work out. I got some, some really good ones. It's not going to work out so well. Paul's concerned about this because this is uh, matters of uh, eternal value, eternal distinction. This is life and death. So he says, I want you to understand that the gospel is exclusive. There is no other gospel. I, I shared this with you before and we're coming to an end, but I remember months past recently, getting such an overwhelming sense again of the fact that if it wasn't for God's sovereignty and his grace in my life, I wouldn't stand. Listen, we were in free fall in the darkness. Blind. People are not going to hell saying, oh, I'm so sorry for my sins, Lord. I'm so sorry. And God's going, no. No, I'm not going to forgive you. That, that's not the attitude of people going to hell. You know, people with the attitude of going to hell and who are in hell are, are going, Lord, I can't stand you. I argued my case before you. That's what's so scary about hell. There's no forgiveness. There's no resolution. There's no restoration. There's nobody coming to their senses. 
So this is, this is a matter of eternal significance. And we close with this last couple verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, last three verses. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, or we could say let him be anathema, let him be damned. Paul says if anybody comes to you, I don't care if it's another apostle, I don't care, Paul's saying I don't care if I come. If it's we, if it's me, I don't care if I come and I'm preaching a different gospel. You can't find it in the gospel that's already given by the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that Paul has preached to you. He says, let him be a curse. That's strong language. He says, Gabriel could come. You could have Michael the archangel come down from heaven and preach to you. But he says, if he preaches to you a different gospel, if it's the apostles and they have turned, by the way, we're going to see Peter, how he turned a bit for a little bit. He got confused. Isn't that something? But if we, or even an angel, should preach to you a different gospel than the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone, not just us, but if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a slave or a servant of God. Listen, the gospel, the true gospel, will it's not popular. Paul said, if I, if I wanted to please the crowds, I wouldn't be preaching this. I'd be telling jokes and nice stories and all sorts of stuff, tickling people's ears. We'd have the place filled. But uh, he says, when I, when I come in my ministry, people go, Paul? You don't listen to Paul? Doesn't seem like much. And Paul's response is this. I'm not trying to please man. My aim is to please. My aim is to please him. So here's the point of the last three verses. The message, listen carefully, the message is more important than the messenger. The gospel is more important than the one delivering it. Because we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ crucified. That's it. It's not about us. It's about him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father, as we come to you in, in Jesus' name, we ask you that you would speak to our hearts, O oh God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. If anyone is preaching to us a different gospel, let him be accursed. This is not about the approval of men. This is not being about being popular. This is about the awesome wonder that we have been called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That we have been called to know Christ. Lord, would you speak to our hearts, we pray. I'd like to ask you, if you don't know Christ today, you've come here. 
And perhaps you're thinking, I have some arguments in my back pocket. Or I, I thought that, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but I thought you had to be a good person too. Listen, if that's your trust, you're believing a false gospel, which, as Paul says, is no gospel at all. If that was the case, Christ didn't need to come and die for our sins. So if you're here today and you need Christ and you're saying, I need to believe in him, I, I don't want to go to everlasting torment. I don't want to be isolated in my own sin, but I want to trust Christ as my Savior today. I believe, as we sang earlier, he loves me. He gave himself for me. That's you. Would you raise your hand? I need Christ for the first time. I need Jesus. I want to know Christ. Is there anyone here today? I need Christ. I give him my life today by faith. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that even when we get confused and off track, you still love us. Thank you, Lord, when we're not behaving right, you still love us. Jesus loves me, this I know.